0: to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. Despite what some would have you believe, America's relationship with Europe has never been entirely smooth sailing. From Cold War-era disagreements over military bases to French and German opposition to the Iraq War, we've always only been one step away from another Freedom Prize incident. But through all of that, the trade and defense relationship between the U.S. and its NATO partners has largely remained strong. That may be changing under Donald Trump. The president's long-running antipathy for Europe, particularly Germany, has become worse during his time in office. At first, it was mostly embarrassing diplomatic snubs. Lately, however, it's turned into a trade war, allegations that the U.S. tried to buy a vaccine from under the Europeans, and a threat to withdraw most U.S. troops from Germany. The chaotic Trump conflict with Europe is pretty bad, whether you're a reformer who seeks more European burden sharing or a diehard NATO partisan. So joining me today to discuss transatlantic affairs is Rachel Rizzo. Rachel is the director of programs at the Truman National Security Project. She's also recently returned from a stint as a Bosch Stiftung fellow in Berlin. Rachel, welcome
1: to Power Problems. Thanks, Emma. Thanks for having me today.
0: So I'm really happy we finally managed to get you on power problems um, because, you know, you spend a lot of your time focusing on um, European affairs and the transatlantic relationship. And I think for a lot of people, that's sort of a a side issue and you actually spend a lot of your time doing it. But you've also spent a lot of time in Europe hearing it from the European side. Um, So why, why don't we start off just by getting your thoughts on the U.S. relationship with Europe in general today? I mean, it looks really bad from the outside. Is, is that um, what you think or do you think something different?
1: So you're right. It's not great. Um, so during the last four years, I think it's been difficult to discern reality from just reading like fiery headlines. And oftentimes you have to take the headlines and the articles that you read with a grain of salt. Um, in the case of the U.S.-European relationship, all we've read for four years is how bad it is. But unfortunately, I think this is one of those times where the headlines and the articles and the think tank reports saying how bad things are between the US and Europe are actually right. Um, you know, for me, as someone who's focused on Europe for a while, I was always someone who was very skeptical of that take for a long time. Um, but over the last year, year and a half, I've really shifted and sort of agree with the people who are saying that things have been bad. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. First, um, no matter what you think of NATO, there's no denying that for the last four years, Trump has shen- sent shockwave after shockwave into the alliance by calling into question U.S. commitments, um, basically saying like whether or not the U.S. would come to the aid of a country if they don't meet their defense commitments, um, or being the first president to suggest that NATO's Article 5, which is the whole foundation of the alliance, could rest upon what that country spends on defense. So that's been a huge problem. Um, second, the EU. Trump has said that he feels like the European Union was basically created to weaken the United States, to challenge the United States. And he's gotten the US and Europe locked into this tit-for-tat trade war um, for basically the entirety of his presidency. So on top of defense, you throw in trade and economics, and the result has been the Europeans no longer feeling like they have a reliable ally in the United States. And then finally, Trump just has this affinity for authoritarian strongman leaders like Erdogan, like Duda in Poland, and a real disdain for democratic leaders um, like Angela Merkel, which has really created extra stress on the U.S.-European relationship, but the U.S.-German relationship specifically. Um, So it's funny, last week, the former U.S. ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, who no one liked, by the way, (laughs) said that Trump had, quote, charmed Merkel. Like First of all, no one has ever charmed Merkel. Are you kidding? Like it's, it's Merkel we're talking about. And second, Trump doesn't charm any European leader. Everyone just sort of rolls their eyes and, and is frustrated with him. It doesn't take him seriously. So yes, in general, I would say things are worse now than they have been in a very long time, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I, I want to hit on on quite a few of those issues, actually, as, as we go through here. Um, but, you know, just as, as an aside, um, I think you're, you're right about the Merkel thing. But um, even in those cases where it's European countries where Trump has, has sort of tried to be nice, it hasn't really worked, you know. The U.S. UK relationship, um, particularly under Theresa May, you know, Trump doesn't deal well with female leaders, and even though he was supportive of Brexit, supportive of her government, it, it just didn't work out. And even under Boris Johnson, who has basically done everything possible to suck up to Trump, um, and and they're actually kind of similar in some ways, relations have still been bad. Um, I assume because of sort of Trump's underlying um, dislike for for the European trade initiatives.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and I think it's you know just. Trump's general inability to be diplomatic with foreign leaders. Um, Usually, you know, look at President Obama, for example. I mean, there's been some, you know, rows with European leaders during his presidency, but in general, you know, things were pretty good. But with Trump, it doesn't matter what the issue is. It seems like he always has something to say, or he places undue stress on the relationship and, um, treats leaders like Merkel and, you know, Theresa May, when she was prime minister with, with disdain, which sort of just adds to the stress of all of it. So it hasn't been easy in any sense of the word.
0: Let's talk a, a little more about the trade war. Um, so, the, I mean, there's some legitimate issues at play here, right? Um, mm-hmm. So there's the the Boeing Airbus subsidy questions. Um, there's there's the question of, I guess, the common agricultural policy and farm subsidies and that kind of thing. Um but it also seems like it's based as much on Trump's dislike of, I guess, European car manufacturers as, as on anything else. And it's, it's sort of, you know, if you'd asked us four years ago where this relationship would be today, I don't think anybody would have uh, suspected that we'd be in an actual trade war with Europe.
1: No, absolutely. And you're totally right. It You know, when you said that it's based as much on Trump's dislike of European car imports, um, I mean, he does tend to personalize these issues which i think we've seen happen especially on the trade front so i think there's a few things to think about here first you know it's good to remember that the u.s european trade relationship is the largest in the world um trade between the two blocks totaled like 1.3 trillion in 2018 and it's only grown since then and we've been so focused on the u.s china trade war that the fact that the u.s and europe have been locked in this back and forth tit for tat it's sort of taken a back seat um And it seemed like the second Trump came into office, he really wanted to stick it to the Europeans, both in the security arena and in the economic arena. So, um, you know, Trump thinks that the EU has taken advantage of the United States for years, and as I mentioned, he really does feel like the EU was created to harm the United States economically. So, I think we do have to remember that that's the lens through which he views the European Union, and because of that, that's the way he's approached the trade relationship. So. He basically kicked off these hostilities in 2018 when he imposed, uh, imposed uh, steel and aluminum tarif- tariffs on Europe, which was totally infuriating for the Europeans. And then in 2009, he levied an additional, additional tariffs on $7.5 billion worth of EU goods, which included aircraft, included wines and cheeses, which you probably read about in the news. And this is basically due to the WTO finding that Airbus, which is a European company, received billions of dollars of unfair subsidies from the EU. So Trump jumped right on that and and levied tariffs um, just a few weeks ago. The U.S. said that even though the European Union has made moves to resolve these disputes over aircraft subsidies, they're going to keep on the 15 percent tariffs on Airbus aircraft and they're going to keep 25 percent tariffs on other European goods. Now, we're all sort of watching and bracing for this escalation because this fall um, the EU is expected to win WTO approval. To hit back um, with its own tariffs against the US for subsidies for Boeing. So, this Boeing Airbus thing, I think, is something that we should be watching closely. Um, there has been a, some progress made in the last few weeks. So, if you watched the Republican National Convention last week, you might have asked yourself why a Maine lobster fisherman had a primetime speaking slot. And that's because. Um, there was some progress made between the U.S. and E.U. Um, the E.U. removed tariffs on U.S. lobsters for five years, and the U.S. said it'll, it'll reduce tariffs on $160 million worth of products from the E.U. So I think we sort of have to wait and see what happens with Airbus and Boeing this fall, and we also have to wait and see what happens with the U.S. election in November. But there's no there's no denying that the the trade war between the U.S. and Europe is very real, and it's been happening for the last few years.
0: You know, it's funny, the lobster thing really does highlight just how much trade is often just these tiny insignificant sort of back and, and forward on on things that nobody ever thinks are important. And maybe they're not important if you're not from a small town in Maine. Um, and so it's, it's really kind of, um, I guess, in the Trump administration early on, a lot of free traders were actually hopeful for better ties with Europe, because they said, well, if we're going to strike back against China, well, we could liberalize trade with our democratic allies and, you know, we could build more of a free trade uh, association. And I think the U.S.-European trade war is where the idea that Trump is only against bad trade deals. I think it's where that went to die.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's also good to remember that, you know, there was, there everyone was very hopeful that there was going to be progress made with the transatlantic trade and investment partnership (TTIP), which basically died um you know years ago and and a lot of people were thinking well you know trump likes to make deals maybe this is just in the freezer and we can like de it and bring it back to life but i think that's sort of the, you know I, I don't think that's coming back um But I do think it's worth seeing, you know, what happens after the November election and where that where that goes between, you know, with free trade between the U.S. and the EU.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, so let's pivot to the second of the things you talked about, because I think yes. the security side of this question has also been really important. I mean, you know, I personally favor probably some US troop withdrawals from Europe. I favor increased burden sharing. But mm-hmm. the way that Trump has done this, you know, repeatedly asking NATO members for back payments on Jews that I, I don't even exist, um, withdrawing troops from one country and maybe opening a base in another because they promised to name it after him. It's all just kind of are. So um, could you maybe just give us a bit of an overview for some of our listeners that, that I guess maybe haven't been paying attention to this and, and talk about what's going on and why it's important?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I would totally agree with you on what you just said. I, I'm also in favor of you know rethinking how and where the US has forward deployed troops. Um, I've even written that I think at this point the U.S. should get rid of the European Deterrence Initiative. Um, that's probably a conversation for uh, for another day. Um, troop deployment. Troop deployment is a hard one for me because, I, you know, I don't think removing troops from from Germany is as damaging as some in Washington would make us think. Like, I don't think it's a gift to Putin. Um, you know, like many people have said. Um, but I think the way that Trump has gone about this is completely backwards. So. It's clear that announcing that the U.S. is going to remove almost 12,000 troops from Germany um, is a punitive move against Germany because Trump has said over and over again that they don't spend enough on defense. Trump says they owe us money. Uh, they owe NATO money. But that makes no sense because there are no NATO fees. Yes. Um, Every country that's a member of NATO has a goal of spending 2% of their GDP on defense. But that's not a hardwired rule. It's just something that people are working towards. And yes, it's true that Germany only spends about one2 of their GDP on defense. Um, but to say that there are fees that germany owes is just is factually incorrect so as far as the troops in germany goes some some are being sent home but some are also being sent to places like belgium and italy Both of those countries spend less on defense as a percentage of their GDP than Germany. So that really doesn't make any sense to me um, and doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Um, And then some are being forward deployed to Poland, I think, on a rotational basis, which is pretty par for the course for the Trump administration, because um, Andrzej Duda, the president of Poland, has been highly... they have a close relationship. Um, he said that, you know, he wants a base in Poland, you know, called Fort Trump. And he's really flattered Trump over the last few years. So this does seem sort of like a thank you for that, you know. Um, one thing that I do think is interesting in this whole conversation is, are um, our, our polls that have been done of the, of, you know, the actual German population. Um, so even though a lot of people have said this move, like removing troops is punitive, I've even been quoted saying that a few times, but the Germans don't really seem to mind it that much. In fact, there are uh, 47% of Germans favor fewer US to- troops in Germany. So I, I think that's something interesting to think about um, and interesting to sort of consider um, going forward, especially if there's a new administration that comes in in, in November.
0: Yeah, sort of not to go off on one of my pet hobby horses here, but I I find the polling um, of European publics on on questions of defence and of NATO to be absolutely fascinating. Um, You know, things like this where a lot of Germans say they want fewer US troops, um, things like um, major European populations where you can't get 50% people saying they'd be willing to defend a lot of NATO allies in the case of a war, um, all of which suggests that public sentiment is perhaps not as sort of friendly towards this defensive arrangement as leaders perhaps think it is.
1: It's true. Um, you know, like the nuclear question has been has been a big one in Germany over the past, um, you know, six months to a year. Um, there's a lot of anti-American sentiment in Germany still. Um, Trump is highly unpopular, and so to say that you know removing troops from Germany is sort of punishment to them. I, you know, I say this as someone <laughs> who admits that I am one of the people who has used this line before. Um, once you sort of bring like actual German polling into the question, it's like, well. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not as bad for Germany or for Germans as as we may be saying that it is.
0: Well, so perhaps that's a good um pivot for us to talk a little about your own experiences. Um, because you spent, I think, about a year um over over the last sort of year and a bit working in Germany um as a Bosch-Stiftung fellow. I'm almost certainly pronouncing that wrong, but working in the German foreign policy community. Um and so I, I would love to hear a little bit more about sort of how that experience was and just um, what you um, sort of learned about European perceptions or German perceptions, I guess, of the U.S. from that experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, I really was one of those people who was very skeptical about people saying that transatlantic relations were at their worst level in, you know, like two decades you know, I would sit around these round in Washington and in Europe, and I would hear people say this, and I didn't really, I didn't really buy into it, you know. Um, but then I moved to Germany last July, so July 2019, um, and just came back in early August. And, you know, unfortunately, after being there for 12 months, I totally get it, because it's true. Um, I think that there's always been you know, like a a sense of anti-Americanism that has pulsed through through Germany, Um, but it hasn't been so great that it's actually like affected how policy is made and how the relationship between Germany and the u s. plays out on the world stage. But unfortunately, I think we've seen it really take hold over the last year. And um, you know, I also hate to be the person that blames everything on the Trump administration, but I do think that this is a really good um a good way to to demonstrate how, you know it, it's taken almost seventy years to build the, trans- the transatlantic t- relationship to where it is today. And what's happened in the last four years shows how easy it is to break trust that's been built over the course of seven decades. Um, You see, I mean, it's not just in Germany, but it's in the UK, it's in France. Um, The Europeans, whether these are European policymakers or just, you know, the European public, really question whether or not... um, the U.S. is a reliable ally. Um, Our response to the COVID-19 crisis has not helped that at all. Um, And, you know, surprising European leaders with a travel ban that we never talked to them about hasn't helped. So it's just like one thing gets piled on top of the other on top of the other over the course of years. And you're left thinking to yourself, even if a new president comes in November. Where is this relationship going to go? What kind of effort is it going to take to repair it? And is it repairable? And um, what kind of, you know, bad taste will the Trump administration leaves if, you know, in fact, he is voted out of office in November?
0: I think that's a really interesting question. It's one I've been sort of thinking about lately, too. You know, just to what extent is, there, is this relationship actually repairable. Um, and I think, you know, for me, the question that follows on from that, that it suggests, um, is, what is Europe looking to, if it's not looking to the US? Um, is Europe looking, are are you know, let, let's say G- Germany, because Europe is not one unified entity necessarily. But let's say Germany. Is Germany looking to become more of a, an autonomous player on the world stage rather than sort of trying to follow on America's coattails? Is it looking to China or other countries um, to try and, uh, you know, I guess, reorient
1: itself? Um, or do, do they not know? I think there's a couple answers to that. I think that I think that German leaders um know that Germany is capable of playing more of a leadership role in Europe and in the, uh, and, and on the world stage but they they've always been reticent to do that. I think that the German response to COVID-19 has really sort of skyrocketed them into more of a leadership position within the European Union and within, you know, like the broader global community in general. Um, I think that Europe and, and Germany especially sort of gets caught in a really difficult position between the United States and, you know, between Russia and China as well. And I don't really know where that is is headed. I think a lot of what happens next does sort of depend on who comes into office in in November, um, because you know the 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 Trump administration has put a lot of pressure on Europe and rightly so. You know um, for things like the 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 Huawei issue and and the future of of five G in Europe. Um, but when you're being told by the United States, who has you know historically been a reliable ally, Um, that, you know, here are, you know, X, Y, and Z things that you have to do in order to stay in our good graces. But then at the same time, you know, taking all these actions that really make Europeans question um, the commitment of the United States, it puts them in a really, really difficult position. Um, And so I think that that's where we've seen Europe over the last six months. But I do think that, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has, has sort of launched Europe into, um, you know, into like a a different stratosphere, uh, if you can say that, just because they've had such a better handling of of coronavirus than the United States. Um, And I, you know, I think it would be hard to, to disagree with that.
0: I I think you're absolutely right on that. I mean, uh, it's funny, the way I've been thinking about it, the Trump administration is, um, you know, America continuing to use sort of the language of partnership while making it very clear that it's not a partnership. It's a, a, you know, a, a hierarchical relationship instead.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're right about that. And and I think that, you know, there's a lot of us and I think you you would probably put yourself in this category who have pushed for greater strategic autonomy um in, in Europe, you know, we want Europe to have a stronger foreign policy, a stronger defense policy to take on more of the security burden on its own. Um but the response and, and people in the United States uh in this administration have said that as well. But when, the, the, when Europe actually takes steps to do those things, you get a lot of pushback in the U.S. Um, and so I think we're going to continue seeing that as Europe becomes more autonomous and we see them become a stronger economic block, a stronger security block. It is going to open up the door for you know, more disagreements between the U.S. and Europe. But I think that's a good thing. Like I think if, if the trade-off, for having a stronger ally on the other side of the Atlantic is, you know, potentially more disagreements at times, that's a trade off that I'm willing to make.
0: You know, it may take a shock, too, honestly. One of the things that I, I was kind of uh, vaguely amused, but, but mostly surprised to see, um, was the reaction when um, the European Union basically put a travel ban on U.S. citizens because of our handling coronavirus. Um, you know, and this is after the Trump administration had shut down most travel back in March and people had to, you know, rush to get back into the, into the United States. And, and yet when the European Union responded and said, you know, for epidemiological reasons, we can't allow free travel... It was almost like there was kind of a shock um, within the Trump administration that they would do this to us. Um, and it may, it may take more shocks of that kind uh, for people, I think, to realize that Europe is becoming slightly more autonomous.
1: Absolutely. And, um, you know, I was li- I was living in Berlin when the travel ban happened, and it just sort of came out of nowhere. You know, there was no consult with European leaders. It happened totally by surprise. And it was so it was just another check mark in this series of highly inflammatory decisions that were made with absolutely no heads up to European leaders. And so for me, as an American citizen, I was, you know thinking to myself, like, what happens next? Can I leave? Like, can I go back home? Um And obviously, at the time that that happened in March, Europe was a few weeks ahead of where the US was in terms of you know coronavirus cases. So the US was looking at Europe seeing Italy in full lockdown, UK cases were spiking and so it seemed like Europe was heading somewhere really bad. And it did for a second, but very quickly the tables turned and now, you know, 6 months down the line, Europe has really made strong strides in this and the United States is still in the throes of it. And, you know, a lot of it is just because of how this administration has handled the crisis, Um, you know, calling it a hoax and downplaying it and telling governors to free the citizens from lockdowns. Um, And so it was interesting to see the U.S. place a ban on Europeans first, and then the Europeans saying, wait a minute, we are not comfortable with how the United States is handling this we're doing the exact same thing and it's it it actually seems warranted in the case of of Europe
0: yeah, it's it's funny. I saw the the most amazing thing yesterday. I saw a quote from the German Foreign Minister um saying we believe that the the protests and these aren't the ones about coronavirus, these are the ones about racial justice in the US, but he says, well, you know, we the German government, we believe these protests are are justified, they are legal and we're watching very closely. The idea that anyone in Europe would be using that kind of language about the US is pretty disturbing.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if that would have happened um Definitely not during the Obama administration, but I wonder if even a year or two ago that would have happened. Um, to especially to hear that from the German Foreign Minister is is really a surprise, um, and I think statements like that, a, we're probably going to see more of them, and b, it just goes to show that I think the Europeans are realizing that in, you know, on the global stage, Europe does have to play a bigger role, Germany does have to play a bigger role. And there really are questions about where the United States fits into that. And, you know, for for people who believe in the transatlantic relationship and, and the importance of it and the strength of it, that's uh, kind of an unnerving, an unnerving development. So I think a lot of us are sort of sitting back and waiting to see what might happen later this year, and what that might mean for, you know, re- repairing things between the United States and Europe, or if we're in for a really, really long road, um, you know, Trump might be gone, but Trumpism isn't going anywhere.
0: Well, uh, on that happy note, I'm afraid <laughs> that's all we have time for, um, but I, I really appreciated you, you coming on to talk about Europe, so thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Emma. And
0: thanks, as usual, to our production team. That's Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, And if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter, at PowerProblems. Till next time.